Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you're not currently affiliated with a community, church, or synagogue, and would like to be part of the larger Beth Emanuel family, you can apply for long-distance membership at BethEmmanuel.org slash membership. At the end of last week's Torah portion, Mishpatim, Moses, Aaron, his sons, and the elders of Israel ascended some of the way up Mount Sinai. They came to a place from where they beheld a vision of the presence of the Almighty. It says, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Exodus 24, verse 10. They saw the place of his feet, which is to say, in the lower heavens, and they ate and drank in his presence. Then the Lord invited Moses to come up higher. The Lord says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. Exodus 24.12 Isn't it a remarkable thing that God did not summon the rest of the party, Aaron, his sons, and the elders of the tribes, to come up higher as well? For that matter, why didn't he invite the whole nation of Israel to ascend Mount Sinai with Moses? So long as we're here, why not spiritually elevate the whole nation, invite the whole people to ascend into heaven and receive the Torah and enjoy the divine presence of God in heaven. After all, they have been saved from bondage in Egypt, which corresponds to the idea of personal salvation of the soul and the national salvation in the final redemption. So it seems to me that it would be natural for God to say, come on up the mountain and enjoy heavenly bliss, basking in the radiance of my presence. Instead, the culmination of the story of the Exodus from Egypt sounds like this. Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And that sort of leads me to another question. Why did God tell Israel to make the sanctuary? Why didn't he make the sanctuary himself? Why not drop the sanctuary from heaven? Wouldn't that be quicker and much more holy? Instead, he says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Hashem wants to dwell among his people, but it's more than that. He desires to dwell among his people on earth, in this universe, in this world, in this creation. The story of the Exodus from Egypt is a picture of salvation and final redemption. Let's connect the dots. The exile in Egypt corresponds to this current exile. Moses corresponds to the Messiah. The exodus from Egypt 
corresponds to the ingathering of the exiles, and the victory at the Red Sea corresponds to the wars of Messiah and the defeat of the nations. The revelation at Sinai, then, corresponds to the revelation of the new Torah, the Torah of Messiah, which will go forth from Zion in the Messianic era. Now, the next step, the Lord says, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. This corresponds to the building of the third temple, the house of the God of Jacob, the temple of the Messianic era. May its foundation stones be laid speedily soon and in our lifetimes. Not only that, the temple itself symbolizes something even greater, an even greater expectation of the redemption, and that is the return of the Shekinah, the dwelling presence. Here's the basic concept. Not only are the Jewish people in exile, God's dwelling presence has also gone into exile. The rabbis have a teaching that says, originally, when God created the heavens and the earth, his dwelling presence resided in this world among his creatures. While it is true that Hashem was hidden, concealed from his creation, at the same time, his dwelling presence, which is also called the Shekinah, could be manifest in this world, and in this way, he walked with human beings. He dwelt among us within the creation. Through the dwelling presence, he was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Delight, and he enjoyed this world, the work of his hands, of which he had declared, it is very good. Humanity sinned, and Hashem banned human beings from the Garden. Not only that, he banished himself from the Garden, because the sin of man forced him to withdraw his dwelling presence by one degree. This is the teaching. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Then there was the sin of Cain, who murdered his brother, and the dwelling presence withdrew another degree. Then there was Lamech and his law of vengeance. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold, Genesis 4, 24. And the dwelling presence withdrew by another degree. And there were the watchers, the fallen ones, who consorted with the daughters of men and corrupted the whole earth with their offspring of Nephilim. And the dwelling presence withdrew another degree. And there was violence and corruption of the generation of the flood and human sin, and the dwelling presence withdrew another degree. And there was Nimrod and the sins of idolatry, and the dwelling presence withdrew by yet another degree. And so it went on with each passing generation, and with each generation God became more and more remote, more and more removed from his creation. This is called the exile of God. Much as the Jewish people would one day suffer exile from the land of promise, and much as Adam and Eve suffered exile from paradise, Hashem too waits in exile from his own creation. What does the exile of God mean? It means a growing distance between God and man. And because of that, a growing distance 
between God and all his creatures and all his creation. Then came Abraham. Abraham was the first. Abraham acknowledged God and he dedicated his life to revealing the one true God to his fellow man. It says God chose Abraham because he knew he would teach his children after him. Abraham taught the men, Sarah taught the women, and the souls they made in Haran were those former idolaters who had converted to faith in the one God. Abraham was the first to glimpse the potential of the kingdom. As it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Genesis 22 verse 4. The book of Hebrews comments on this verse of the Torah saying, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 11:13. As Abraham says in the next chapter of the Torah, I am a sojourner and a stranger among you. Genesis 23 verse 4. Abraham recognized God And because he recognized God, he recognized the potential of the future, the kingdom, on earth. He dedicated his life to that vision, serving God, heeding his voice, and spreading the knowledge of God to his generation. The rabbis say that, through Abraham's efforts, the divine presence of God came one degree closer. After Abraham came Isaac who carried on the mission and the legacy of his father. And through his efforts, he brought the Shekinah one degree closer. After Isaac came Jacob, and he brought the Shekinah one degree closer. Then the heads of the tribes came, and they carried on the mission of their exalted forefathers, transmitting the knowledge of God to the next generation, walking by faith, walking in the revelation of God. This was the generation of righteous Joseph. They drew the Shekinah one degree closer. After them came the generation of Yocheved in Egypt, and likewise carried on the legacy and drew the dwelling presence one degree closer, and so on and so forth, until we came to the time of Moses who brought the return of the dwelling presence to the very door, to the very threshold. And that brings us up to where we are in this Torah portion, when the divine presence of God stands upon the top of Mount Sinai in the sight of all this, in the sight of all the people, speaking from atop Mount Sinai in the fire and the glory, only one degree removed. The end of Exodus 24 describes how the glory of the Lord rested atop Mount Sinai as a consuming fire for six days. On the seventh day, Moses ascended the mountain and stepped into the cloud. The sages explain that, in so doing, he stepped into the heavens, for the heavens had bent low to rest upon Mount Sinai. As Moses entered the clouds, he entered the heavenly precincts into the heavenly courts to behold the heavenly dwelling place. No sooner did Moses enter into the cloud and into the presence of the Lord than the divine voice instructed him to raise a contribution for the construction of a holy place. 
Why didn't God invite all Israel to ascend the mountain and join him atop the mountain? The answer, in my opinion, is that it was never the goal of the redemption to get man into heaven. We are not made for heaven. We are made to dwell on earth. The idea is not to go to heaven. The idea is to bring God into this world. This was a fundamental teaching of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. In Exodus 29.46, the Torah says, I brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. We would expect the verse to say, I brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might keep my promises to their fathers, or that I might bring them to the land of promise, which are both true statements. But here we see a revelation of God's heart, so that I might dwell among them. Tanhuma says, When Israel stood before him at Sinai, he told them, There is only one reason I delivered you out of Egypt, in order for you to erect for me a tabernacle, so that my presence will dwell amongst you. This explains what Paul Levertov says. The great significance of the redemption from Egypt is not the revelation of God's power, but of his condescending love to Israel. In his relations with man on earth, God has shown himself a king who desires to make his abode with us here below. The higher a being, the lower he is able to condescend. God wished to be among the small and despised not as a sultan ruling in his palace, hidden and ruling only by power, but as a good and wise king, whose one desire is to draw his subjects to himself. A king who also, out of love for his own, forsakes his palace and dwells among his people in order to unite himself with them, that they may see more of his glory and learn more of his character. The proof of God's love lies less in the fact that he raises creatures to himself than in that he stoops to have his tabernacle among them and thus reveal himself to them. From this perspective, the goal is not to get human beings into heaven. The goal is to bring God to the earth. If you come from a traditional salvation-based theology, like I do, it requires a fundamental paradigm shift. We discover that salvation is not about the afterlife as much as it's about this life. This is why the Our Father prayer asks God to send his kingdom into this world. The Master did not teach us to pray, let me into your kingdom in heaven. He said that we should pray, let your kingdom come, as in heaven, so on earth. Likewise, when the new heavens and the new earth of the world to come arrive, it does not say, behold, the dwelling place of man is with God, they will dwell with him. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21, verse 3. So, we have answered the first question, which was, why didn't God invite them all up into the heavens along with Moses? What about the second question? Why did God tell Israel to make the sanctuary? Why didn't he make the sanctuary himself? Why not drop the sanctuary from heaven? Wouldn't that have been quicker and much more holy? I have an idea about this too. It's just a guess, but here's my idea. Human beings are responsible for the banishment of the presence of God. Therefore, we alone can rectify it. Since we are the ones who drove God away from his world, only we can bring him back into the world to restore the world to the way he created it to be. I have pointed out to you in the past that the Edenic imagery of the sanctuary is evident in the cherubim. As we read in our Torah portion today, you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat, Exodus 25.18. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them, Exodus 26.1. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. Exodus 26.31 I believe that the presence of the cherubim in the tabernacle points back to Eden. The cherubim are only mentioned in connection with Eden and the tabernacle. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 3.24 Now look at the state we're in. Human beings are exiled from Eden and therefore from eating of the tree of life. God's presence is banished from earth and therefore from dwelling among men. Israel is exiled from the Holy Land and therefore from the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. The dwelling place of God, the Holy Temple, is in ruins, and the dwelling presence wanders in exile. The redemption we pray and long for, may it come quickly. The work of King Messiah that we pray for and wait for, may he tarry no longer, reverses each of these this is what Messiah must accomplish. He must return Israel to the land, rebuild the holy temple, and restore God's presence to earth, and bring an end to humanity's banishment from Eden and the tree of life. This teaching has a practical application that strikes close to home. You might say, right at home. Judaism teaches that each Jewish home is in actuality a small temple, that is to say, the divine presence of God, or the Holy Spirit, can take up residence in the homes of his people. Similarly, the apostles teach that the disciples of Yeshua, both Jewish and Gentile, are as a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 1 verse 11. When we make our homes places of prayer and blessing, places of study of Torah and centers of godliness, wholeness and goodness, like an oasis of life in the wilderness, we bring God into this world. But when our homes are places of dysfunction, self-pity, screaming anger, cutting words and tempers, or impurity and indecency, then we banish his presence from our homes. The business of bringing God into this world begins at home. And it gets even more personal. The same Hebrew words which we translate as, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, could be translated, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell in them. Exodus 25.8 Had Israel been worthy, no tabernacle would have been necessary. The same divine presence which came to rest in the tabernacle would have rested within each individual. Each individual has the potential to be a dwelling place for the Almighty. God can dwell within the individual. The apostles were familiar with the concept. Paul repeatedly symbolized the congregation of believers as the temple of God with the Holy Spirit dwelling within. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said in Leviticus 26.12, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 As we begin to understand the sanctuary as the dwelling place of God. We can see how aptly this metaphor described the disciples of our master, Yeshua, understanding the congregation of believers as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. We can better appreciate the significance of the Pentecost experience in Acts 2. The holy brotherhood of our master gathered together in the temple courts on the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. The Holy Spirit descended just as at Sinai and came upon the congregation of disciples. They became a living sanctuary, a little tabernacle inside the temple. Yeshua in our midst is the ultimate expression of the desire to bring the dwelling presence. As the second Moses, the Messiah, is supposed to bring about the temple in the Messianic era and usher the return of the Shekinah from exile back to the place of God's feet. Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Ezekiel 43 verse 7 
So as his disciples, our efforts are expended toward bringing godliness into this world. First step is to make ourselves into a ready sanctuary of Hashem, in whom the divine presence can dwell, on whom the Spirit of God can rest. The next step is to apply ourselves to the efforts of perfecting the world, preparing it for the kingdom. Like Abraham, who brought the divine presence one degree closer. Abraham was only one man. He began the process by heeding the voice of Hashem, obeying the call on his life, and spreading his faith to those around him. Let's bring heaven down to earth. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.